Good morning. Please open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. You can find that on page 1006 and 7 of the Bibles provided. I want to begin this morning by asking two related questions. And the first question is, do you feel guilty? People, people feel guilty for a lot of reasons. So you might have an especially sensitive conscience, or you may have just done something very wrong. Or sometimes we feel guilty when we shouldn't feel guilty. We haven't done anything wrong, but we just have this sense that something's not right, and we, we sort of internalize that with this feeling of guilt. Do you feel guilty? The second question is related, but different. Are you guilty? It's possible to be guilty, but to not have feelings of guilt. You might have a, a hard conscience, or you might just be unaware of the wrong that you've done. There's lots of reasons why you might not feel guilty, but actually be guilty. In talking about guilt, I'm, I'm really meaning you to think about your relationship with God. Are you guilty before the Lord? If you were to stand before Jesus today as your king and judge and creator, would he find that you are guilty of sin against him? Would he find that you're repentant of that sin and trusting in his work? Or would he find that you've trusted in yourself, that you're working for your own salvation? Wherever you find yourself today, whether you feel guilty or whether even now you're coming to see that you haven't really felt guilty, but you are, the gospel is for you today. The good news of Jesus is for those who both feel guilty and those who may not know they're guilty, but they really are and need salvation. Let's begin this morning by reading verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews chapter 10 is continuing an argument about the difference between God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament and the new covenant that Christ has established. This argument really has been going back to chapter 4, but with the specific focus on the, the covenants, it's been going back to chapter 8. Here in this chapter, the author uses this phrase, the law, to refer to the old covenant, and then the good things to come to refer to the new covenant that Christ has established. And the author continues to reiterate his points that the old covenant priests and the old covenant sacrifices, those things are inadequate to deal with our sin problem. It may sound like we're kind of retreading old ground here, but what we see in our passage this morning is that the author is bringing his argument into a kind of laser focus. 
He wants us to be crystal clear that the big problem with the law and its rituals is that those things cannot deal with our big problem, our sin. The old covenant cannot finally and fully accomplish forgiveness of sin. He makes this point in a few ways in our passage. First, he says in the verse we just read in verse 2 that the old covenant priestly offerings could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They couldn't remove the stain of guilt. They could just remind you of your guilt. Then in verse 4, he says that it, it is impossible for the blood of, blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He says something very similar in verse 11 about the ministry of the old covenant priests. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So here's the big reason why Christ's work is absolutely necessary. We need our sins taken away. We are guilty before the Lord and we need forgiveness. And none of our own efforts can erase our sin. We can't take away the guilt of our sin, nor can we change our hearts in the present so that we no longer sin. And not even God's old covenant prescribed rituals can do that. We need forgiveness because of our sin. This morning we're going to be walking through this passage, verses 1 through 18, in order to see that Christ has once and for all secured forgiveness for those who believe in him. Christ has purchased forgiveness And this good news should lead us to rejoice in God's forgiveness. So here we're going to walk through this with three points, or maybe three and a half, depending on how you're counting. So point one is we need to be forgiven of our sins. We need to be forgiven of our sins. Point two is that Christ secured forgiveness. Christ secured forgiveness. In point three, we're going to see three proofs that Christ purchased forgiveness. Three proofs that Christ purchased forgiveness. And then as we close, we'll see we are called to rejoice in God's forgiveness and to share our joy. So let's look at this first point. We need to be forgiven of our sins. This fact really underlies everything that the author of Hebrews writes. Sin is the big barrier that keeps us from fellowship with God. Because of the depth and power of sin in our lives, we need more than the old covenant law and rituals could do. Those things, even though they were ordained by God, they're ultimately useless when it comes to taking away our sin. Now, to talk about sin in our modern world is to sort of step into a minefield because there's all sorts of wrong ideas floating around in the culture about sin and even in our own, own minds and hearts about sin. So if you talk about sin to a neighbor, they might think that you're kind of crazy, that you're just talking about some religious rules and you kind of are a stickler about some made up things, you know. And then on the other hand, you have people who celebrate being transgressive. You know, they get, they get their identity out of breaking all the conventions and the rules. They wear sin like a badge. Again, even among Christians, we can get sin wrong. Kids who've grown up here in church, I wonder if you think that 
Your parents only talk about sin as a way to correct and control you. It's just kind of their weird hobby horse to get you to do what they want. Or maybe we think that sin only refers to the the really bad things that people do, like murder or stealing. All of these are ways of getting sin wrong. But we really need to have a right understanding of sin if we're going to have a right understanding of what Christ has provided in forgiving sin. The author of Hebrews' burden, again, is to show us that Christ really does take away sin, that Christ secures forgiveness. One good way to look at sin is to look at what Christians historically have said about sin. So you can turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and find a great definition of sin, even though it's a little bit uh, antiquated, perhaps, in its language. It says, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's question and answer 14 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What it's saying is we're in sin whenever we fail to conform to God's law or when we break God's law. To simplify it even further, we can say that sin is doing what God forbids or failing to do what God commands. So just a couple of biblical examples. God commands children to honor their father and mother. So if you as a child dishonor your parents, you've sinned against God. You've done what God forbids. And then also we can think of the command to love your neighbor as yourself. If you harbor hatred in your heart against your neighbor, or if you go do something mean to your neighbor or speak an angry word to your neighbor, you've sinned against him and you've sinned against God. You've, you've failed to do what God commanded. You haven't loved your neighbor. We don't get a full definition of sin in our passage, but we do get a picture in, in verses 5 through 7 of the opposite of sin. The author ascribes the words of Psalm 40, which we read earlier, to Jesus, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And and in that psalm, we see Jesus saying that he has come to do God's will. Jesus is God himself, but in taking on flesh, he humbled himself. And as a man, he lived in perfect submission to God. That's the opposite of sin. And this starts to highlight something deeper about sin. Sin is not just sort of outward acts. Sin is an inward heart of rebellion against God. That's the root of all sin. The man Christ Jesus perfectly submitted to the will of God. He came to obey God's will. He came to do all that the Father gave him to do. And he happily submitted. He fully submitted in his heart, in his words, and in his actions. But in our sin, we throw off that submission to God that that we should have as creatures made by God. We buck against what God says we should be and do. We want none of God's authority. So sin springs from a proud heart that says, I will rule myself. I will do what I want to do. This is the root of the sin that was there in Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden. And when you and I most recently sinned, whenever that was, that same root of rebellion was there in our hearts. The hatred of God's good authority 
is sin. And this is what separates us from God. This hatred of God's good authority, this rebellious spirit and our sinful actions, these things earn us God's judgment. Because of God's goodness and his mercy and love and our rebellion against that, we deserve judgment from God. That's what sin is. It's a rebellious heart and it earns God's judgment. So we see sin is a heart level problem. It's infected our humanity to the core. And this is why these old covenant laws and rituals couldn't do away with sin. You know, the old covenant worshiper who brought his offering to the tabernacle, he might know his guilt. He might genuinely want atonement for sin and, and even trust the Lord's promises. But on their own, the, the blood of bulls and goats that he offered couldn't pay for his rebellion. They weren't precious and powerful enough to pay for his rebellion. The ritual washings that the priest prescribed and the law prescribed couldn't sanctify him of his uncleanness. They couldn't touch the heart corruption that he had. The ministry of the priests couldn't sanctify him. Now, to the extent that there was real forgiveness in the Old Covenant, we know kind of theologically that forgiveness ultimately came on the basis of the future work that Christ would do. Like the, the Old Covenant was like paying with cash it borrowed from Jesus. And the evidence of this, as the writer observes in verse 2, is the need for these offerings never ceased. If those rituals really could have de dealt with sin, they would have stopped. But instead, the Day of Atonement came and went every year. The same ritual, the same result. Sin remained. The Old Covenant's rituals also became an easy thing for sinful people to abuse. So many people in Israel fell into a kind of superstitious hypocrisy. They went through all the motions of the tabernacle or temple worship. They, they said all the right things, but their hearts were far from God. Isaiah says that very thing about Israel. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They didn't really believe in their sinfulness or God's willingness to forgive. They simply went through the motions in a superstitious way. They thought, well, if I do this, I'll keep God on my good side. For religious people like us, our rebellion often shows up in this kind of hypocrisy. This is a special danger for people who grew up in church or maybe are growing up in church. You've heard the gospel many times. You may know how to answer every gospel question in, in the right way, with the right vocabulary, even theological terms. You may have been encouraged to develop habits of Bible reading and prayer and coming to church. And those are all good things. But it's possible to do many good religious things with a rebellious heart, with a heart that's far from God. So being here at church is good, but it, it doesn't save you. The question is, are you repenting and trusting in Christ? Or are you going through the motions of Christianity with a rebellious heart that's far from God? To understand sin, we have to go beyond appearances and outward religious acts. We have to get to the heart. Our problem is a heart-level rebellion against God. That's what I mean when I say that sin is our biggest problem. The Old Covenant priests couldn't change rebellious hearts. 
The animal sacrifices couldn't pay the price of our rebellion against God. In a minute, in our second point, we're going to look at how Hebrews quotes Psalm 40. But before we finish with this first point, our our need of forgiveness, I want to show you another verse in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 12. You can turn there if you like. In this verse, just a few verses after the one that Hebrews quotes, we see David say, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Part of the reason that Psalm 40 ultimately points to Christ is that David knew of his own failure to perfectly do God's will. Again, he says just a few verses earlier, I'm here to do your will. I've got open ears. I'm going to do your will just as it's written in the book. But now he says, my sins are so numerous. They've overtaken me. He sounds almost hopeless. His heart fails him. This is what true knowledge of sin should do to us. It's fascinating to see David use the the image of hairs on his head in relationship to sin. If that image sounds familiar, it's because Jesus uses it in a positive way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, God knows you so well, he knows the number of hairs on your head. It's kind of interesting to mash those two images together. The Lord knows you intimately, and he knows all your sin, every one of them, from the most secret sin to the most public sin. You might be able in some way to hide your sin from other people. But God knows. He knows everything. If we come to the Lord on our own merit, we're just like David, overtaken by sin, overwhelmed. We can't outrun our sin. We can't get out ahead of our sin the way a a PR firm tries to do damage control. There are so many we can't even count them. Do you see your sin problem? Do you understand the ways you've you've done what God forbids? Or the ways you fail to do what God commands? Is your rebellion against God clear to you? Do you see that you need forgiveness? We all need forgiveness. No man-made religion can solve this sin problem. Even God's ordained Old Covenant rituals could not take sin away. They simply remind us of how endlessly sinful we are. We need to be forgiven of our sins. And the good news of Hebrews is that there is a way for sinners to be forgiven. Christ has secured forgiveness of sins. And that's our second point. Christ secured forgiveness We see this in this quote from Psalm 40, and then the author's interpretation of the quote in verses 5 through 10. So let's read this together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, 
These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. When David says here, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure, this doesn't represent a kind of schizophrenia in God, as if one day he says, you know, here are these sacrifices to do, and the next day he says, never mind, I didn't really want that. What this is telling us is that God's desire is, has always been that his worshipers would come to him with a pure heart. He desired his people not just to be outwardly in conformity to the old covenant laws, but to have a heart that loved his ways, that loved his law. He wanted their rebellious hearts to be changed. As the last part of the quote says, God desired a servant who would wholeheartedly be devoted to doing God's will. Well, again, this psalm was written by King David, and in many ways, King David was an exemplary servant of God, but we know that even David fell short of doing God's will perfectly. So even as it was originally written, this psalm was kind of crying out for the coming of a king into the world who would truly embody these words, who would truly submit to God's will. And so in this brief paragraph, we see how Christ is that person, that king who perfectly comes to do God's will. And we see why Christ is able to do what King David couldn't do. Christ can take away sins, even though the law could not, even though King David could not. He can sanctify the worshiper who draws near to him. So I want to briefly give you four reasons or the four identities of Christ that we see here that enable Christ to secure forgiveness. First, Christ is the divine son. We see Christ as the divine son when the author says, when he came into the world in verse 5. So we've seen already in Hebrews Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the radiance of God's glory who came into the world. This quote from the psalm also speaks of a body you have prepared for me. This appears to be the author interpreting the psalm to apply it to Christ. Because the original Hebrew of the psalm speaks of God giving me an open ear in this line. But the idea of that open ear is, is not mainly about the ears. It's about submission to God's will. The person with an open ear is, is ready to hear and do the will of God. And so the Son of God coming into the world will willingly use the body God has prepared for him to obey his Father to the uttermost, even offering that body in his death on the cross for sin. So Christ is able to deal with our sin problem because he's, he's not a sinful man like we are. He is the eternal Son of God who became a man in order to die in our place. So Christ secures forgiveness because he is God. Because he is God. He is the divine Son. Second, Christ can take away our sin because he is the perfect worshiper of God. His heart is not divided. There is no hint of hypocrisy. So when Christ says that he's come to do the will of God, he's come to do it in a complete, undivided, sinless way. 
The man Christ Jesus was the one and only pure-hearted worshiper of God. He was so devoted to God that his obedience led him to death. He held nothing back from his submission to God. He followed God's will all the way to the cross. In his perfect love for us, his enemies, he bore God's wrath for us. So what's the summary of the law? It's to to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus did that perfectly. Christ secures forgiveness because he is the perfect worshiper, the perfect law keeper. Next, Christ secures forgiveness because of his, because he is the perfect high priest. And he is the perfect high priest, or he's qualified to be the perfect high priest because of his perfect obedience. So these things all go together. I think this highlighting of the high priesthood, or the perfect high priesthood, is really the thrust of this quote from the Psalms. The author has continued to highlight Christ the high priest in the distinct distinction from the Levitical high priest. We see this comparison continue here in chapter 10 by the emphasis on offerings. I think whenever we see the word offerings in this chapter, we are seeing a reference to priestly work. So he said the Old Testament priests, they made their sin offerings in accordance with the law of God. But now Christ has come and Christ also has authority from God. He is doing the will of God that's written in the book And what's he doing according to the will of God? He's making a more perfect offering. Christ's offering is a once-for-all offering that truly sanctifies the worshiper. So Christ Christ secures forgiveness by his perfect priestly offering. And that offering is Christ himself. Verse 10 defines Christ's offering. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Our great high priest, fulfilling God's perfect will, offers his own body once for all to sanctify us. The offering then never has to be repeated. It's sufficient to sanctify sinners. That word sanctify here in Hebrews 10 is best understood as set apart for a holy purpose. Christ's once for all offering makes unclean sinners fit for fellowship with our holy God. It does what the law never could do. The sacrifice of Christ washes away the pollution of our sin all the way down to the core. So Christ secured forgiveness as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews, when he's using this quote, he says that uh, Jesus didn't just sort of say this quote as kind of a, a reference to Scripture, but that as Jesus speaks this quote, he is doing away with the first order in order to establish the second. He's doing away with the first in order to establish the second. So this is, again, not not a mere quote. It's kind of Jesus making a a cosmic legal pronouncement. He's saying the first covenant has passed away and the second has come. And this new covenant that I'm establishing, it's, it's not founded in the blood of bulls and goats. It's not founded upon sinful priests. 
My new covenant is founded on my own perfect obedience, my own priestly ministry, and my own once-for-all sacrifice. Christ has secured forgiveness for his people. He has done the work. His death was not just the death of one sinner for another, which is a noble thing, but not a saving thing. It was the death of Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the sinless Messiah. In Jesus' death, God satisfied the wrath of God. And Jesus rose from the dead. He passed through the heavens and he presented his offering, his body to God as payment for sins. And it was received. And after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, crowned with glory and honor. So if we go back to the question from the first point, what is your heart like? If you have a rebellious heart, where do you turn? If you have guilty feelings, what do you do? Don't turn to yourself. Don't turn to any man-made religion. Turn to the one who can cleanse your heart. Turn to the one whose sacrifice truly pays sin's price. Turn to Christ, who has secured forgiveness. The author really could have stopped there, but he keeps going with his argument. And in this final section of our passage, we see three proofs that Christ really did purchase forgiveness. That he really did purchase our forgiveness on the cross. So let's walk through them one by one. And the first proof we see in verses 11 through 13. The proof that Christ really did purchase forgiveness is that Christ sat down. Christ sat down. Let's read verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice the contrast between the posture of the old covenant priests in Christ. The old covenant priest stands daily at his service. He's standing daily offering the same sacrifices, but these repeated sacrifices never take away sins. The author could have added at this point in history, tomorrow there will be a priest standing at the temple again, ready to offer the same sacrifices, and they still won't take care of sin. But then comes the contrast. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ's dealing with sin is finished. He's completed the work he came to do. He offered his own body for sins, and then he sat down at God's throne. Through his once-for-all death and resurrection, Christ conquered sin and death, the great enemy of his people, And now he sits and waits for every other enemy to be finally subdued. He has struck the decisive blow. Now it's just a cleanup operation. The priest stood 
and their offerings and sacrifices didn't work. Christ sits because his offering paid for sin once and for all. And he has no need to offer any more sacrifices. Christ has purchased forgiveness. There's a theological term for this. It's called the session of Christ. The archaic meaning of the word session is just sitting. So the session of Christ is part of the good news of the gospel. He is seated. He's not just alive again, but he's exalted and seated. We don't have a high priest who's frenetically working to prepare another offering. If you look for Christ standing and working and offering sacrifices, you won't find him. We have a high priest who's already made the ultimate offering, the final one, and now he's seated on God's throne. Verse 14 sums it up. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Tom Strainer explains what this word perfection means in this context. He says, perfection in Hebrews has the idea that sins are cleansed and removed so that the conscience is no longer defiled by guilt. Believers, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, can now enter God's presence freely and boldly. That's what it means to be perfected in this sense. The sufficiency and power of Christ's work can't be tarnished or corrupted by anything that you do. You can't spoil what he's done. We are sanctified and cleansed for fellowship with God. So because Christ sat down, if you trust in Christ, you don't have to worry that the sin that you commit on the drive home from here will send you to hell. That doesn't mean the sin is unimportant or that you don't need to repent of it. But Christ has sat down. It has been dealt with. His offering for sin way back on the cross in Jerusalem, it paid for that sin and it paid for every future sin you will commit. Christ's offering for sin, it paid for ancient David's sin. It paid for the sin of the thief on the cross who saw Christ in paradise that very day. And his offering for sin can pay for your sin and my sin if we trust in him and what he did. Trust in Christ, seated as king and high priest on God's throne, and you are forgiven of your sin. Christ's session, Christ sitting on his throne, is proof your sin is paid for. Not only is Christ seated, but the Holy Spirit also testifies to the efficacy of Christ's work. That's the second proof, the Holy Spirit's testimony. The author quotes again from Jeremiah 31, again, the same portion that he quoted back in chapter 8. And this time he says, it's the, these are the Spirit's words. This is the Spirit's testimony about Christ's work. So he's kind of unpacking for us Jesus Christ's work. This is the Holy Spirit's words. Let's read this together. You'll find this uh, beginning in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So the Holy Spirit testifies to us about Christ's sanctifying work. I want to read one more verse from 
Psalm 40. And this actually isn't even a verse. It's just extending what we've already read. So the, the quote, Psalm 40, ended in verse 8. It says, I desire to do your will, O my God. The next verse, the next, the next line is, your law is written within my heart. What the Holy Spirit unpacks for us here is that Jesus does for us what is true of him. The law is written on his heart. He works a change in our hearts. He does what the law could not do. The law couldn't touch our hearts, but Jesus brings this change. It turns rebels into sinners. I mean, rebels into servants. That's what Christ's work does. We grow from bucking against what God loves to joyfully submitting to what God loves. So Christ's saving work, his sanctifying work touches the heart. It changes our orientation to God so that we find joy in serving him instead of rebelling against him. But that's not all. He tags on at the end, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Earlier in this passage, we find that the law is a reminder of sins every year. That annual day of atonement was a reminder of sin. But God's spirit testifies that because of what Christ has done, God remembers your sins no more. If you trust in Christ, God remembers your sins no more. This is God's own testimony. God interpreting God's actions for us. So do you want proof that Jesus really did what he said he did? Well, the Holy Spirit says it too. The Holy Spirit confirms God remembers your sin no more. God has solved our sin problem. Through Christ's once for all offering, he's taken away our sin and he's changed our hearts. So believe the Spirit's testimony. The Spirit testifies because of Christ's work, God remembers your sin no more. That's the second proof that Christ has secured forgiveness. And this leads to the final proof. Christ has, we know that Christ has secured forgiveness because sacrifices have ceased. The author first hinted at this in verse 2, where he asked this question, if the law really dealt with sin, wouldn't the sacrifices have ceased to be offered? If the law had really done you know, what we hoped it would do, it would, have, it would have ended after the first sacrifice. But we know that's not what happened, right? They keep making those sacrifices daily and yearly. But Christ brings an end to sacrifices. That's what verse 18 tells us. Where there is forgiveness of these, referring back to sins in verse 17, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no more work for a priest to do because Christ has done it. Sacrifices for sin have ceased. Christ has fully and finally purchased forgiveness for his people. Brothers and sisters, are you still trying to pay for your sins? Or maybe do you hesitate to confess your sins because you think God's going to hold you at arm's length? This passage is a, a sustained, repeated call. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. If Christ has saved you, you don't need to perform any acts of penance. There's nothing you can do to clean yourself up and make yourself presentable to God. Look to Christ. Again, he's not up there furiously wearing himself out, getting another sacrifice ready to offer. 
He's seated on his throne because his blood covers you. He's enjoying his heavenly session at God's right hand because he's already paid for your sin. And listen to the Holy Spirit's testimony. God remembers your sin no more. Christ has carried them away as far as the east is from the west. As Dad prayed earlier, he's buried them in the depths of the sea. Even though your sins are more numerous than the hairs on your head, Christ has taken them all away. And there's no more sacrifices for sin. You know, sometimes in in churches you'll hear of the altar call. That always rubs me the wrong way, right? There's no altar here. Right? We don't have an altar here. We have no priests on staff who are making sacrifices for your sins. When we drink the cup and we eat the bread and the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus made. We're not sacrificing Jesus again. We're rejoicing that our sins have been paid for. All the wrath of God for our sin was poured out on Jesus. There's no more sacrifice needed. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating sacrifices have ceased Jesus paid it all. The author of Hebrews wants us to have no doubt about our forgiveness in Christ. Christ is the sure and certain hope of sinners. Now, if we've understood all this, we may be wondering, well, so what? You know, I may be, if you're a Christian, you walked in the door believing this, hopefully. Right? You know this truth. It's, this is Christianity 101. Yet as I close, I want us to consider two points of application that that are very related. The doctrines here call us to rejoice in God's goodness. And that rejoicing isn't something that we do privately only, but it's something that we do with each other. It's joy to be shared. So those are the two points. We're called to joy and we're called to share that joy. I just want to turn once more back to Psalm 40. Look at the very end of that psalm, verses 16 and 17. The psalmist David closes by saying, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. If we've been forgiven through Christ's work, we have reason to rejoice. To rejoice and be glad. We have even more reason for joy than David did. Because we've seen how this forgiveness is finally purchased. We see great David's greater son seated on God's throne forever. Forgiveness is secured. So brothers and sisters, do you have this joy? If you're burdened by guilty feelings, are you turning to Christ and seeking joy in him? This joy belongs to you. Christ purchased it for you. It's your privilege to continually say, great is the Lord. And as we read in Romans, nothing can take this joy away from you. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love. So as you think about your daily walk with Christ, make it your mission every day 
to fight to find the joy of forgiveness. This means you need to be honest about your sin every day, too. Note David confesses, even as he rejoices, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes a thought for me. So rejoice, because the Lord has not left you in your sin. Christ remembered you, and he died so that you can be forgiven. You have a high priest in heaven who takes a thought for you. This joy in Christ is the daily goal of our private worship. We read the Bible and pray in order to rejoice in the goodness of God. So again, every day, wrestle with God in prayer until you can say, Great is the Lord. If you've, tasted, if you've never tasted this joy, this joy can be yours. So if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you'll be forgiven of your sins. Your guilt will be removed. You'll no longer be stuck in a a pointless repetition of the rituals of self-salvation. You will know Christ as your great king and high priest, as your gentle and lowly savior. So this call to rejoice in the goodness of God and salvation, this is a call to everybody. May all who seek the Lord rejoice and be glad in him. If you walked into this room an unbeliever, this is for you. Find your joy and forgiveness in Christ. If you came in with those guilty feelings, find that Christ has forgiven you and secured forgiveness. If you came in here not feeling guilty, but having realized your guilt, find your joy and forgiveness in Christ. That's the first application point. Rejoice in forgiveness. And the second is closely tied to it. Notice that this call to rejoice is in the plural. May all who seek you rejoice. May those who love your salvation say. Earlier in the psalm, David says, I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. The second application point is, look for ways to rejoice in your forgiveness with other people. Share your joy. To follow Jesus necessarily involves helping other people follow Jesus. And one simple way that you can help others follow Jesus is by sharing your joy in the gospel. So husbands and dads, I think this is a special word for us. Is your joy in Christ evident to your family? Can they see it? Are you encouraging them that God is good because of your own testimony of how he has graciously forgiven your sins? Do you rejoice in front of them that Jesus has taken away your sins? Do they know from your own lips that that you think that's the best thing in the world, that you're forgiven? Do you invite them to share in your joy? And one way you can do this, if this is hard for you, I think it's hard for many of us, is start singing with your kids and your wife. Get, get your bulletin and keep it and sing these songs together. These songs are a way we're kind of discipled in sharing joy together. If you need kind of a, a first step of doing this, that can be a step for you. We have to admit this doesn't necessarily come naturally to us. It certainly doesn't come naturally to me. Expressions of joy can sound corny. Sharing 
Joy in Christ requires humility. It requires you to share something vulnerable about yourself. But consider where we've been this morning. If our sin is our greatest problem, and God has come in the person of Christ and offered his own body once for all to solve our great problem so that we can fellowship with God, shouldn't this leave us with joy in our hearts? By his work, Christ has taken away the guilt and power of sin so that we can have fellowship with God. And the proof is that God has sat down, Christ has sat down at God's right hand. Sacrifices have ceased. We have the Spirit's testimony. Our forgiveness is secured. We're at peace with God. And so we rejoice. Church members, is rejoicing in forgiveness part of the way you fellowship with the other Christians in this church? What's the main thing your fellow church members know about you? Do they know anything about the joy you have in being forgiven by Christ? Have you shared that joy with them? And what do your neighbors or co-workers know of your Christianity? Do they know at all that you follow Christ? Do they know that there is joy in being forgiven by Christ? The only way they may ever know this is because they've heard of your joy in Christ. Is your joy in the gospel evident to your unbelieving neighbors and friends? The joy of the gospel is meant to overflow. One step we can take to helping others follow Christ is to share the joy we have in being forgiven. I'm not encouraging you to manufacture something false. Rather, I'm encouraging you to lean into the message of Hebrews chapter 10. Look upon Jesus, exalted in heaven, seated at God's right hand, because he has made the ultimate offering for your sin. Consider your rebellion against God. Consider how helpless you were to remove the stain of sin. Consider Jesus, who by a single offering has cleansed and forgiven all who trust in him. Look to Christ and rejoice in your forgiveness. Rejoice with one another.